1: In the perspective of some, particularly those in the abortion industry, they would say, well, during the course of the last 44-something years, um, up to 58 million children have been aborted as women have exercised their constitutional right to choose. I mean, after all, it's choice. Um, it's a private decision, according to the interpretation of the Constitution. And so why all of this talk? Why all of this noise? Well, it's a valid question. Why? Uh, beyond the obvious answer that 58 million million fewer people have been born in the United States because of abortion. But beyond that, there's the untold carnage on the lives that remain behind. Think of it. Every aborted baby has a mommy and a daddy, grandparents, in some cases, perhaps siblings, brothers and sisters. Much of the human toll from an emotional standpoint never gets accounted for, and ultimately In the process of exercising her constitutional right to choose, as the Supreme Court told us in 1973, it is often the woman, and sometimes the man, but for the majority of cases, the woman, who has to bear the spiritual and emotional brunt of abortion. Joining me tonight in studio is Sharon Landis. Sharon is the founder and executive director of Healing Tears, a ministry of compassion that specifically focuses on post-abortive women and men. And Sharon, is always great to have you with us.
2: Thank you, Craig. I'm happy to be here.
1: Why is this an issue that we don't hear much about? I mean, I would imagine there's got to be at some level an acknowledgement, well, this is not just fetal tissue. This is actually a life that has been terminated. And as such, feelings of, did I make the right decision? What have I done? Why have I done it? A child that will never be known, a brother or sister that will never be introduced to other brothers and sisters. There must be some very deep-seated feelings that women deal with that they're told essentially by the abortion industry, just kind of ignore it, you'll get over it, stuff all that down because after all, you're just exercising your right to choose.
2: It just isn't talked about anymore. When I first started in this ministry back in 1987, even up to 2000, churches would talk more about it, they would talk about it, people would talk about it, and women would come forward and say how terrible they feel. But... I think since in the last 10 years, at least, maybe 12, it's just kind of gone underground. Hmm. And I don't find very many churches ever bringing up this word in a sermon or ever, and it's really not time you don't find any articles on it in magazines back in the 1990s. There were some articles in magazines about women who'd been healed from their abortions, but that, that all ended. I mean, it just got stopped. So it's just not acceptable, not politically correct, whatever it is. It's not talked about. So if a woman is having those feelings of great sorrow, I mean, she can't tell anybody. She's afraid to. She doesn't know who to tell. I mean, she might confide in her best friend, but the best friend really doesn't know unless she's had something similar. So, But I find most women don't tell anyone. They stuff it down and keep it secret, but it does take
1: a toll in their life. And I would imagine that it's got to, Sharon, because in spite of the fact that there are clear cut efforts of either, you know, the crimes of commission or omission, omission perhaps by the church and not addressing this issue more effectively, commission by those in the abortion industry that intentionally wish to dismiss the emotional toll of abortion, uh, largely for financial reasons, and yet. Women have to know, I'm having these feelings, and yet no one wishes to validate my feelings. But the lack of validation by family, by the church, by society doesn't make those feelings of guilt or shame or confusion or wondering. It doesn't make those feelings go away, does it?
2: No, they just get deeper buried. If, if, they can, if a woman can talk about her abortion to her family, if, the more people that know about it, the, the easier it will be on her. But for most of the women I see, they
1: haven't told anyone and the deeper they, zero <laughs> the deeper they bury this while it might help them at some levels to function does it not end up having a ripple effect in almost every aspect of life meaning Relationships, trust factors with men, with God, um, feelings affects, of shame yeah. and guilt, all of that, it would seem to me, would be like tentacles that would just reach in and have uh, take its emotional toll on almost every aspect of a woman's character and psyche.
2: It does. It affects her whole life. And she may or may not be aware that it is affecting her life. She probably isn't, but it does affect her life because abortion is traumatic. It's a traumatic experience. So if she keeps it stuffed inside of her and never can talk about it, she really has post-traumatic stress disorder. And that can express itself in lots of dysfunctional behavior, lots of self-destructive behavior, um, alcohol, drugs, trust issues, you know, in feeling low Mm self-esteem, lots of ways. Shopping, spending, whatever you do to help you try to feel good. And so if she has no place to talk about it, sometimes when people – Um, they hear about the class for the first time and they kind of think gee maybe I should maybe I need that and then they'll probably dismiss it then they hear about it again last year we had four women and one woman she heard about it and she said maybe I need to go to that class because she'd had several abortions and then she just forgot about it but she went back to church the next week and they had it in the bulletin again and she says oh I think I need to call her so she called me and she said I think maybe I need to go to your class but she was so disconnected from her feelings she didn't even know if the abortions affected her or not Mm. I mean, she completely had disconnected And it really
1: becomes a coping mechanism, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, it is. So in spite of the fact that we try to mentally disconnect from the experience of abortion, the emotional toll on, as we mentioned, trust, relationships, substance abuse. Eating uh, disorders. Whatever all of it might it, be, yeah. it, it all comes to the surface one way or another. And, and I would imagine Sharon exacerbated even more so for the post-abortive woman who has perhaps had one or two abortions.
2: Or three or four. Or
1: three or four. Finally meets the right guy, wants to now have children, and suddenly can't.
2: Oh, that's a double grief. Wow. Big time. Because she has the grief of the loss of her children, and now she can't get have children.
1: And then I imagine huge. the relational feelings in terms of trust, especially from a from a spiritual dynamic. There's got to be that sense of God is now officially punishing me. Lots
2: of women feel that way. Yes, but he's not. <laughs> but they do feel that he is punishing them. They, they punish themselves plenty. They, a lot of women don't have children because they did abort their children, so they don't deserve to have children. So there's a lot of reasons. They, they're very self-punishing. God, God's not going to punish them, but we do punish ourselves mm-hmm. because they, don't, they hate what they did. Many women do.
1: And, of course, the, the, the utter lack of a sense of acknowledgement of those feelings— um even the ability to to validate the pain is completely stripped away not only by those within the abortion industry who do so because they have a profit motive, but let's face it, society, and you mentioned some of the church's silence on this, this is not a topic we want to talk about. We want to leave this in the category of, well, it's a woman's right to choose, somehow that that's elevated to a level that makes it completely not only unquestionable, but unconscionable to think that there will be any um, recourse or, or any side effect of having simply exercised your right to choose.
2: Well, I've worked with more than 350 women, and every woman says that after she had the abortion, she, it, she, it, what she experienced wasn't what she expected. She never knew going into it she would feel like she did after. Wow. Never.
1: So there's a, 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 a setup of expectations that are not met, and then once those feelings come, any sense of validation of saying, it's okay, it's normal that you should feel this way, and that there is hope and healing available to you is completely stripped away.
2: Yeah, there's not too many people around to do that. I love to talk to people about this, but then I'm a grief counselor. I do, I do grief. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's important to talk about it. It's important to talk about any loss or any grief, because if you hold it inside of you, it just keeps
1: Well, we're short-circuiting a natural human emotion and expression. I mean, we've all known individuals who have lost a loved one, and suddenly the next day they just say, boy, they've sure got it together. She's holding herself together so well. You can hardly tell that she lost her husband of 40 years. And you've got to wonder eventually something that, that that facade is going to crack and fall apart because it's not normal for us to dismiss grief or not to acknowledge loss and go through that right. pro- that grieving process is a part and parcel well, to the healing process, isn't it? It is.
2: We're not going to ever know comfort until we mourn. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's why healing tears. If you cry your tears, you will be healed. Right?
1: Absolutely. <laughs> so I mean, if, it, it if not we Not only is it, is if it logical, we give, it's scriptural. Yeah,
2: we need to... I mean, t- t- talking to women, I try to encourage them to give themselves permission to grieve, to feel... The feelings, And, yeah, it's going to be hard, especially if it's been 30 years and you've pushed them all down and you've ran away from them and you don't want to feel them. But if you're willing to let them come up and let God comfort you through this process, you'll be free. They'll be gone.
1: And that's the question perhaps lingering on the minds of those eavesdropping on our conversation tonight that perhaps have been down that road. They to themselves In their quiet thoughts, acknowledge, yes, I made this decision back when, for whatever reason or whatever multiple times, drudge up all of those thoughts and feelings and face this decision head on. Now, after all these years, can any good come of that? And if you're asking yourself that question right now, we're going to meet a special guest in a moment that's going to help lend some insight to that. Let's take a brief time out. If you've just uh, tuned in a bit late, we're in studio this evening with Sharon Landis. Sharon is the founder and executive director of Healing Tears, and um, we'll get Sharon to tell us a bit more about the ministry coming up later on in the program. I can point you in the direction of their website, which is simple. It's healingtears.org. That's healingtears.org. There's all kinds of resources and classes available, and we'll tell you more about that coming up momentarily right now let's pause for a moment get you updated on some traffic
0: and now back to lifeline with craig roberts
1: Back to the conversation in studio tonight with Sharon Landis, founder and executive director of Healing Tears, a ministry of compassion related to the issue of post-abortive women and men. Information again on the web at healingtears.org. That's healingtears.org. All right. What of this experience? What of the challenge that millions of women have faced since 1973 in deciding to have an abortion for whatever reason and then going months years, decades, without ever really addressing the feelings, acknowledging the pain, validating the questions that are there. What does that do to a person? We have Monica Guzman in studio with us tonight. Monica, welcome. Thank you. We appreciate you coming in to share your story. Thank you. I know it's not an easy story to tell, but an important one. Tell us a bit about your background, and eventually why you felt it necessary to address this issue in your own life.
3: Well, I um, was um, 10 when my mother died, 12 when my father died, and uh, I um, was just uh, out there, you know. I was just out there, and uh, I was lost. I... I. Uh, Felt like, um, when I think back on it, I was more like a um, sheep that had been released to um, wolves, so to say. No shepherd. No shepherd. Lost your
1: parents at a very young age. And so any sense of of direction to say, this is good, this is bad, stay away from that. Exactly. You were really robbed of that, weren't
3: you? Very much so. And um, I... um, Had um, ended up having uh, two children. I had uh, uh, a son, and two and a half years later, I had my son at fourteen. And at two and a half years later, I had uh, my daughter. And um, I just know that I needed. I started hungering and thirsting to know the Lord. I needed God in my life. That's what I, 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 I needed help, and um, I just um, know that God heard my prayer, and um, I uh, accepted Christ in my heart in 1981, and uh, I knew God had um, forgiven me of all my sins, Jesus died, that I might have life, I knew it, I accepted it. And then I went on, and in 1987, I uh, married my husband, Joe Guzman. And all the time we were courting, there was this unction in me. You need to tell your husband your secret. You need to tell your husband. I, I resisted it. I resisted it, and I refused. I couldn't. I had stuffed that secret so far down in me that um, I didn't tell him before we were married. And um, a few years went by, and here it comes again. You need to tell your husband. You need to tell Joe. Tell him.
1: Now, Joe was aware that you had two children younger.
3: He was aware that I had two children. Well, yeah, because they were... With you him. know, with yeah, part of the family, he, yeah.
1: But he, there, there were some other events in there that you were hiding from him. Yes, and almost hiding in a sense, Monica, from yourself. Is that fair to say?
3: I did. I couldn't think about it. I stuffed it. I refused. I would fight, fight to not let it come to surface for me to dwell on what I had done.
1: You mentioned to the point of seeking and finding God.
3: Yes.
1: Was there ever any sense that God would reject you if this is something that you confronted head on? And I know that sounds like a funny question because some people listening are saying, well, of course God knows. He's, he's all-knowing and all-seeing. And yet sometimes in the, in the privacy of the decisions that we make and in our sins, we feel as if somehow if we don't think about it and don't address it, maybe somehow God won't know about it because if he knows about it, how could he possibly love us for forgiveness? Did you ever have feelings like that?
3: I had feelings of, of shame, mm. of regret, of torment, and I I just know that I had to I had to seek God because I couldn't continue um in that state. And um so I believed once I accepted God, I knew I, I believed that I was forgiven, and but I was still full of hurt and pain and shame.
1: And, and did you get to sense the Holy Spirit was prompting you then. Oh, definitely to come clean, so to speak, with yes, Job? Yes,
3: yes. As a matter of fact, my husband was outside and I was in the house, and it was it, it, here. It was again. You have to tell him. I was afraid. But I knew at that point I had to go and tell him.
1: Were you afraid, too, as you've described, shame, regret, torment, that revealing that secret to your husband would have a detrimental effect on your relationship?
3: Yes. What would he
1: think of you? Would there be a trust factor that would be harmed because of that?
3: Yes. Well, I knew, well, my my husband's first wife... um, passed away and uh, from cancer and they had always wanted children and they couldn't have children. So I knew his story. So because I knew his story um, I was ashamed to tell him I thought he would take it how How could you, you know, how could you do this, you know and God did end up blessing them with a uh, um, a, a beautiful daughter after they adopted two beautiful children but when I told him I told, I went outside I told him I said I have a secret I, ha- I have a confession to tell you and he said what is it and um, I said I had two abortions and it was quiet you know and um, he just his arms around me and he held me and he comforted me and he spoke words of encouragement
1: to me he reassured me right then that he loved me Joe in that moment when she first approached you and said, I have a confession a lot of guys are thinking oh she's run up the credit card to the hilt <laughs> something of that sort what was going through your mind when you could see that she was obviously in emotional pain. This was something serious. What was going through your mind? What was your sense of anticipation about what she might say? And what was your initial reaction after she revealed to you her secret?
4: Well, I just know that um, she kept this pain for a long time in in her heart. You know, and what I felt... I, I actually I felt more love for her because she was so honest, and um, and the pain that she's been holding all these years. Yeah, I just felt this um, this love for her. Uh, this is God's daughter, and um, I just needed to love her and understand her and show her grace like God shows us grace. He showed me abundance of grace. And um, I just, I promised the Lord that I was going to take care of her through her pain and support her. And um, it just gave me more love for my wife. Just gave me more love for my wife. Through um, all those years, she kept it in. And um, I just felt more in love with her
1: You have a gem over here. You know that, (laughs) don't you? I do. There are women listening right now who are probably fighting back tears, saying, I've had my confession to make that I've held for years and years, and I am literally terrified of saying anything, let alone the sense of God rejecting me. What would my husband say? What would my children say? What would anybody close to me say if they found out this dirty, dark secret from my perspective that I've held down all these years?
3: Yeah, yeah. And that and, and Craig, I tell you, the thing of it was is that I lied to him. I lied to my husband. The fact was I had three abortions, but I was too ashamed too ashamed to tell him that and um, so we went on you know a few years went by and I'm at work one day and my co-worker I'm at work at Shepherd's Gate I I was working at Shepherd's Gate and my co-worker Jennifer comes to me and says we're going to have a panel of women coming Monica to tell their stories their abortion stories and um Are you going to come? And I said, I'm going to think about it, you know. Well, right then, I made my mind up. I'm not going. I am not going to that. And this was the next day. I was off. I'm not going. Well, when I woke up that morning, I was, I felt this compelling unction in me go. I got ready like I was hurrying up to get ready so I wouldn't be too late to work. And I got there and these wonderful, courageous women of God told their stories. By the time I heard the last one, I was sobbing. I was boohooing. I couldn't, I, I couldn't, I was so broken. I went, to, I, I went to Sharon, and I started telling her my story. I told her the truth, and I, told her, and I told her I lied to my husband. And I said, but I got to tell him the truth. They prayed for me. They wept with me. They laughed with me. The, it, it was just everything I needed. God knew who to put in that room with me.
1: Let me ask you to pause there for a moment, Monica, because when we come back, I want you to share with our listeners how your life has changed, Since letting this secret out, not only in terms of how you feel and think of yourself, but in terms of your relationship with your husband, with your children, and with your God. We're going to pause on that point. We'll take a very brief time out. I don't want you to touch the radio dial. You are forbidden. (laughs) We'll be back with more of our conversation. Monica Guzman in studio tonight, along with Sharon Lindes, the founder and executive director of Healing Tears. Information again about this ministry. And how it can help you on the web at healingtears.org. We'll take a very brief timeout and back with more.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig
1: Roberts. All right, welcome back. Craig Roberts, Sharon Landis, and Monica Guzman sharing her story. Monica, let's pick things up where we left off. You talked about the tremendous relief, not just in the first revelation to Joe, of two of the three abortions. But eventually coming to him again and saying, I I manipulated the truth a bit again. It's actually more than that. Finally now, there's this breakthrough. You suggested it was like having 100 pounds of weight lifted off of your shoulders. How has coming to terms with the decision to abort, the loss of the children, the grieving, the mourning, the acknowledgement of the loss, the discovering of the forgiveness, not just from God, the grace extended to you by your dear husband, but then eventually to be able to realize that in through all of this is God orchestrating what it's like to experience His forgiveness. How has that experience now impacted your relationship with Joe, your relationship with your children, your relationship with God, and and ultimately how you see yourself.
3: Well, as far as my relationship with my husband, my husband is my hero. Jesus is my savior, but my husband is my hero because God gave me someone who was gentle, kind, patient, loving, humorous, and um sensitive because sensitivity was definitely definitely what I needed when I couldn't take no more from writing down the truth of what I had done and I would just cry. He would come in the kitchen and he would hug me and hold me and sometimes he'd cry with me until I let him know, okay, I'm all right now, and I go back to writing. So my husband is my hero, and I know now God put him into my life because of the, the, the pain and the hurt that he has suffered. God prepared him to be a major support for me. He prepared him. Yes, I went through cancer twice. He took care of me. I feel like I am the most blessed woman in the world.
1: I should mention for ladies listening, she keeps Joe in a cage at night and <laughs> a very short leash, <laughs> not available because there's thousands of women saying, "Does he have a brother?" <laughs>
3: you no, know, my husband. Through all those emotions, the anger and stuff, when I, sometimes I would snap. You know, I was angry, and if he didn't just back off and and just.
1: Pour some oil in the water.
3: Yes, <laughs> just leave me in God's hands. you know, if he didn't do that, that the enemy would have we may not even be sitting here right now. That's why I know God specifically prepared and equipped him to be my um support.
1: And see guys, when you're a godly man, yes, you will become a hero. To your wife, you should aspire to be a godly man. So instead of your wife saying, I can't wait to kick the bum out of the house, your wife is saying, Jesus is my Savior, God in heaven is my Lord, but my husband is my hero. Guys, are you listening? Are you listening? Say a word to women listening right now who are today where you were. Who are filled with, and I'm quoting you, shame, regret, and torment, who are terrified of anybody finding out, who can't possibly imagine having a conversation with God about this, let alone a husband or an offspring, and are in that prison where you were, and they're terrified to come out. Talk specifically to that woman, would you?
3: I know you're feeling desperate. You're in a desperate place. But God loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. He loves you so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die and shed his innocent blood that whosoever believes in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. He has forgiven you. Now, the Lord wants you to know it is time to forgive yourself. You are free. Be set free from that prison of shame and guilt and, and torment and stress that just comes and hits you over the head anytime it wants to. You don't have to take it no more. You don't have to take it no more. God loves you, your babies. Our babies are with the Lord in heaven. And even women who have had miscarriages, those babies are with the Lord in heaven. You didn't do anything wrong. It, it, when you have miscarriages, it's, it, that's, it, those things happen. You didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing for you to feel guilty about either. It's time to forgive yourselves. And be free and tell your story. And I would like to say to any men out there, husbands, be men and let the truth come out. And when she finishes don't question her don't use give any negative body language don't look wrong you hold her and you thank her for trusting you with her story And then from that point, you love her unconditionally, just the way God loves us. Just the way God loves you, unconditionally.
1: Sharon, there are a lot of women listening right now that are perhaps overwhelmed by Monica and Joe's story. And they say, I don't know where to start. I need somebody to help walk me through this. Talk to us a bit about... Healing Tears Ministry and what women, what post-abortive women can find in terms of hope and healing.
2: We we offer a Bible study that takes you through the grieving process step by step. Just and and but before you do that, we'll just meet with you and talk to you and see if you're ready. Just just sit and talk, tell your story, see if you're ready to do this. If this is a good time, I, I encourage you to give yourself permission to grieve. Because the healing from abortion involves grieving. You have to grieve your loss and be honest with yourself and honest with God. God already knows, but you just have to come clean with him. And he, he's, he'll walk you through it. You don't have to go through it by yourself. You, don't have, you went through the abortion alone. You don't have to go through the healing alone. You have comfort. You have support. And we're there to support you. So we have, we have a class starting next month. In Castro Valley, and there are other places that some have have groups that can do the similar thing. But yeah, I just encourage any woman who's had an abortion to call us, to look at the website, to send me an email, just to say I'd like to find out more about the healing. Because it does take; it's not something that you can do in one session. It does take a few months to go through this. Because and
1: for a lot of these women, they have been stuffing this right. down for a few years, if not decades.
2: Right, and it's. The anger that you have inside of you that keeps you from forgiving yourself. It's the pain that you've never let out so that even though you even believe in your head that God does forgive you, because he does, he forgives all our sins, but to get that from your head to your heart takes means you have to process those emotions.
1: And for the men listening right now who might think there's a disconnect with my wife. There is a reaction to circumstances that just doesn't seem to work Logically, meaning that there's almost as if a, a well of resentment or anger is drawn from and you've never been able to figure out why maybe now a light has gone on maybe you need to broach the subject maybe you need to let your wife know it's okay to talk and be open create a safe place for her as Monica described. What
2: about husbands and wives who've had an abortion? They need to both Mm. grieve it and talk. I remember a pastor saying to a friend of mine who they had, had aborted their child, and they never dealt with it for 15 years, never talked about it. And usually once you have an abortion with your husband, you never talk about it. Ever. 20 years later, we've never talked about it. You need to talk about it. You need to let these feelings come to the surface. I mean, abortion affects the fathers just as much as the mothers, but they don't. They acknowledge it even less. I mean, they, 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 most of them didn't go through the procedure, even though some do watch it. But it affects them.
1: And in addition to that conversation taking place, um, pastors, if you're listening, 58 million children aborted in America since 1973. I won't talk about this from the pulpit because it's controversial, embarrassing, awkward, difficult, hurtful, painful nonsense. It's time that you come to terms with what it is that you're trying to hide or avoid and quit denying the men and women in your congregation the opportunity to experience the totality of forgiveness in Jesus Christ because you're too afraid that it might be construed as politically incorrect to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, to talk about the grief, to acknowledge the pain, the anger, the anxiety, the self-loathing, the shame, the torment, as Monica described it. You are robbing your parishioners of the ability to find healing. My beef is not with you and your beef is not with me. I suggest you have a conversation with God about it. And ask yourself the question, when is the last time you got up from the pulpit and shared all of the good news? Mm-hmm. That includes post-abortive men and women. Again, information available on the web at healingtears.org. That's healing Tears. Dot O-R-G. I'd like to thank Sharon Landis, the founder and executive director of Healing Tears, for being with us today, and Monica Guzman and your husband, Joe, for sharing your story tonight. I'll mention for listeners that want to repeat some of what you've heard, or you know someone... That is today where Monica was. And you say, oh, I've got to get this information into their hands. They have to hear Monica's story. The podcast of tonight's broadcast will be available tonight about 7.15. And you can go to kfax.com, download that podcast, send a link to someone who needs to hear this story. We want to get this message out to as many post-abortive men and women as we possibly can. So again, we encourage you to get a copy of the podcast and to get more information about the Ministry of Healing Tears on the web at HealingTears.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I revealed to listeners to this program... My goodness, well over a decade ago that my mother had been diagnosed with cancer and she has been uh, battling with cancer and a cancer survivor for the last, oh, I don't know, 12, probably 13 years come this next March. And during the course of that time, I've taken note about one uh, very interesting thing that, uh, that occurs in the life of an individual dealing with cancer. And that is that you suddenly become very good with numbers and counting things and keeping tracks of things. It's everything from the dates of appointments to how many pills that you've taken to what time that you take the pills. Dates become very important. Anniversaries, birthdays, wedding anniversaries, things of this sort. Numbers become a very important part of the life of a cancer survivor. My guest tonight knows what that's like. She has taken the time to pen an interesting book, a book that she calls the hardest piece, and you'll find out why as we get into our conversation. Kara Tippett's has written this book in the midst of a cancer diagnosis. And, uh, Kara, I sure appreciate you taking some time to be with us today. Thanks so much for having me. You know, thinking about the counting, and one of the big things that gets counted beyond anniversaries and birthdays and important dates is time. The realization of time and how quickly it passes, I think, becomes uh, almost obsessive in the case of of some people struggling with cancer. And with that thought in mind, it leads me to a, a huge question, and that is that you have written this book in the middle of a cancer diagnosis, a cancer diagnosis that began with breast cancer, which is not uncommon for women uh, your age, and yet um, that cancer has grown in many respects. And, and I would suspect, is it fair to say in front of our audience today that from a medical diagnosis, you would be considered terminal? Yes, it is.
5: That is fair to say. Mm-hmm.
1: Wow, so here you are in the middle of a terminal cancer diagnosis and yet you're taking time to write a book. Um, You're taking the time to have a conversation with us today. Why?
5: You know, I feel like um, it's this high calling I've been given and it's a simple calling of, of asking people to look at their little moments as the huge moments they are. And in the hard edges of life, not, you know, mine is cancer, but all of us have hard edges in life. How do we invite Jesus into our stories? How do we bring him near? And, you know, I have, from the beginning of my um, diagnosis two and a half years ago, writing is how I process. Writing is how I um, understand things and process. And so I've been doing that for two and a half years, and along that journey, a publisher came and asked me if I would wanted to do a larger work with them. And it felt like a neat legacy, a neat way to leave my voice behind for my children.
1: When this cancer diagnosis came along, you were at a point in your life that I guess we could define as soaring. You and your husband, Jason, had been called to a church plant um, in one of our most beautiful states, Colorado. You arrived there, a beautiful new home, not long after you arrived. And uh, listeners will recall the Waldo Canyon Fire, I think the largest in in Colorado history, if not certainly one of the largest, uh, that nearly claimed your home. Fortunately, it did not. Long after your arrival there, you had kind of an odd uh, mishap in the bathroom one night. That led to a hospital visit, and not long after that, at the age of thirty-six, you were diagnosed with breast cancer. Tell us what was what was going on at that time.
5: You know, I it was it was this. I, I guess I can only explain it as God, um, one finger at a time, pulling open my hand to my story. And redirecting our path to one of strength, to one of beautiful brokenness. And um, the fire, the fall, the cancer, you know, it was, it was very traumatic. It was very hard. But it was this story of, of God saying, I'm going to give you this story. I'm going to ask you to receive it. And from this brokenness is where I want your ministry to begin. And um, it's been beautiful. It's, it's been beautiful to see what God has grown in um, our community, in my own life, in the life of my family. But it doesn't discount how hard it has been. It has been very hard.
1: You, in writing, um, committed to paper some words that I once heard my mother speak a number of years ago um, on a Thanksgiving Eve In discussion about the things that we're grateful for, and we usually think about a family, and uh, typically health is on that list. My mother was in the middle of one of her um, more vicious rounds of chemotherapy at the time, and I recall her saying to me startling words that she considered cancer to be one of her greatest gifts um, yeah. And we've talked about that several times, and, and she's explained to me what she means by that. When you wrote those words inside of your book, The Hardest Place, what did you mean by those words?
5: You know, I think what it does is it gives you new vision for your living. It gives you um, just a new appreciation for every moment that you're given. And I think so often, because I have young children, it's a, you know, get through the tasks. Get through the day. Um, do this well. But uh, maybe not embrace it, kind of live at a distance from it. And cancer caused me to live in a new filter of life where each day felt like some, each breath felt like something to be thankful for each moment and you know when i started my youngest daughter was three and my heart my heart's prayer was that she would grow old enough to to be old enough to have her own memories of me Mm. and god has answered that prayer for us she's five now and i remember being five i'd five i certainly didn't remember being three and so it feels like um you're just given these new eyes to see what matters and then and then also these other eyes to go this doesn't matter. I'm not giving. I'm not giving my energy to things that are not eternal, that don't that don't aren't significant, that aren't loving. And it kind of gives you a new filter through which you see all of life.
1: So, so this diagnosis, particularly when it is in the terminal stages, as your cancer is, does it reorder the way you prioritize and see things in life? Do you suddenly have things that used to be on the important list that that no no longer are, and things that really only been thought about casually that all of a sudden have become priorities?
5: Absolutely, you know, especially in ministry. I think um, I think I, I was I was I was willing to spend my time in places that I will no longer spend my time. Uh, you know, I still am passionate and love discipleship, but the discipleship I do is inviting women into my family. It's not something that takes me away from my family. And I say, ladies, come. Come watch me parent. Come watch me love my husband. Ask me questions, but don't ask me to take it, take time away from my family. And, and so just partner with me in it. And so now, you know, I, I'm weak. I don't have a lot of strength. I'll say, come Come and have dinner at my house, and I will let you clean my kitchen, and I will sit there and answer questions about marriage and love and parenting, and I'll let you help me, and I, and, and I totally transformed. You know, before my ministry was about my strength and helping others, and now it's this partnership of, of you know, you bring your strength, and I'll give you the wisdom that I've gained, and it's and it's really beautiful, actually.
1: If you've just joined our conversation today, we are visiting with Kara Tippett. She details her journey dealing with a cancer diagnosis a couple of three years ago that is considered to be stage four. That means it's terminal. She's sharing her story both inside the pages of The Hardest Piece, a new book, by the way, that has been uh, released by uh, David Cook and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com, and of course, uh, sharing her story tonight here with us. For longtime listeners to this program and to this radio station, you will perhaps recall the journey of Randy Brady, our Morning Drive host, who over the course of about three years from a diagnosis of mesothelioma cancer, lung cancer, to eventually his passing, one of his last interviews on this radio station, on this program, less than 30 days before he went home to be with the Lord. And that experience that he walked us through over that course of time, which I have repeatedly characterized as Um, having been an opportunity to see how to live life with much grace in the midst of death and to revisit how we look at death. It's a natural part of life, and yet it tends to scare many of us. And that watching someone walk through all of this can help us to uh, not only learn what it means to live with grace, but also to see God's grace in the midst of facing death. That's much like our conversation with Kara today. We're going to take a brief time out. We'll update you on some traffic. We'll come back to more of Kara's story as this edition of Lifeline continues